We live in an era where the patient-doctor relationship is changing rapidly. I don't have to tell you this, but where previously you had to make an appointment to see a physician, now you can reach them over the phone or lately over some form of impersonal electronic messaging system. Your communication is immediately incorporated into the entire medical record along with the response of your primary care provider. And with the advent of this EMR, instead of having to wait until the next appointment to receive the results of any recent diagnostic tests, this information is available to you at the push of a button. Many patients in the U.S. are now able to log into their own EMR, browse their test results, and even some of the provider assessments. But this information highway is bi-directional. Patient smart devices are able to instantly upload blood pressure and capillary glucose levels at home, can send these data to the primary care physician, and within hours or days, the patient's plan of care could be adjusted. There are obvious benefits to this type of direct, digital synchronization between patient and provider, but this open line of uncensored communication may also create unforeseeable problems. As a neurology provider, I've received calls from patients asking me if they have Lyme disease or sarcoidosis or strokes based on the radiologist's interpretation of their latest MRI as part of a workup for migraines. Having spent countless hours on Wikipedia, Medscape, WebMD, and other accessible resources at their fingertips, my patients have armed themselves with a battery of questions and concerns about their health. On one end of the spectrum, I may be asked, what is Lyme disease? Whereas on the other end, I may be threatened with negligence for not proceeding with a lumbar puncture, a battery of blood tests, and follow-up neuroimaging. Not only can these often unnecessary measures pose unnecessary risk for these patients, but they also add gratuitous costs to our healthcare system. Welcome back to Brainwaves. I'm Jim Siegler. Today we're going to be taking you through the tough questions of the evolving patient-provider dynamic. When do doctors know to withhold information, or should they? When should patients have access to the entirety of their medical record, or should it be freely available? In a time when genetic testing is a standard of care, how can knowing the content of your chromosomes shape the interaction between the patient and the provider? Ultimately, healthcare is a two-way street, a collaboration between the patient and the provider where decisions made about patient care are made together by incorporating the interests of the patient with the experience and the knowledge of the treating physician. Today I'm going to be talking with a good friend of mine about his experience in collaborating with physicians. Full disclosure, he's not a medical professional, and he is one of my good friends, so this interview is going to be incredibly biased. He's an intellectual, an engineer, a self-instructed individual who took it upon himself to learn how to interpret EKGs in his spare time. Actually, uh, as part of my signals processing course in college, we developed algorithms to decode the raw EKG data and then convert them into the normal wave pattern you see, and then program some logic to perform some uh, basic EKG diagnostics. And he could read them almost as well as any internist I know. He certainly would be one of the patients who would have called me up about his MRI, asking if he had Lyme disease. But he's also a rational man, and he wouldn't have demanded a lumbar puncture or empiric antibiotic therapy because he appreciates concepts like pretest probability and risk-benefit relationships. So take a listen. I'm Patrick Green. As Jim just stated, I'm an engineer with a healthy bit of knowledge in the medical field. My family, a great deal of whom are medical professionals. Uh, Jim and I have been good friends for several years, and I'm honored to be part of the Brainwave series. Well, thank you so much, Pat. I'm really glad you could be on it with us again. Let's start by just discussing why you're on the show. Pat, you've been seeing a lot of doctors lately. Uh, why don't you tell me about how all that got started? 
so last year I w- underwent an ultrasound screening at work. Uh, it was kind of a uh, just a random screening that they brought a company on site. And so I had a screening for carotid arteries, jugular veins, thyroid, kidneys, liver, gallbladder. I didn't have any symptoms at the time. I, I didn't have any indications for a screening. But I decided at 29 years old, it might be time to start taking a bit better care of myself. And six weeks after the screening, I got the results back in the mail indicating there was something dark, I guess, in my thyroid and that I should consult a physician. So the physician with whom I set up an appointment uh, was not particularly concerned about it, given that it was unifocal and under a centimeter at its largest dimension. But I decided to self-refer to an endocrinologist where we discussed uh, a couple options for diagnostic strategies. And ultimately, I requested fine needle aspiration biopsy. A week later, I got a phone call from the endocrinologist informing me that I had papillary thyroid cancer. And so she referred me to two surgeons, one at Baylor and the other at MD Anderson. Uh, I, I currently reside in Houston. So Pat saw the surgeon at Baylor, but not MD Anderson. There would be a little bit more of a delay with MD Anderson than Baylor. And the surgeon recommended a partial thyroidectomy alone. Pat was also complaining of neck pain, which he recognized was not likely attributable to his thyroid cancer. He's an athlete, and joint pains are par for the course. But he knew that the papillary thyroid cancer likes to metastasize locally, and he wanted reassurance that his surgeons weren't missing something. So he requested a neck CT, and they obliged. Now, you can see already that Pat is driving much of his care, getting a screening ultrasound when it's not indicated, demanding tissue diagnosis when the imaging appeared benign, and requesting a CT scan, which was not part of the first surgeon's workup. His doctors could have denied him these tests, and perhaps justifiably. I'm not an endocrine surgeon, but his doctor appreciated the two-way street of the patient-doctor relationship, so the decision was to proceed down this path. Some of the reading that I had done on standard of care for, I guess, thyroid nodules and well-differentiated thyroid cancer, uh, which mostly came from the American Thyroid Association's guidelines, stated that CT scan was often used in conjunction with head and neck ultrasound for localizing the disease in the neck. And I do understand that there are risks associated with CT scan in terms of radiation exposure that may result in uh, increased risk of cancer, as well as adverse reactions to uh, the contrast used during the CT scans. Got the results back uh, two days later, and it indicated that there were several suspicious lymph nodes in the central compartment of my neck as well, um, but it wasn't fully conclusive. So the surgeon remained firm that the partial resection Uh, was the proper course of action. But neck surgery, even a thyroidectomy, is not a benign procedure, especially for cancer. Pat wanted a second opinion, and that's reasonable, if not essential, when you have a new terminal diagnosis. So I spoke with some of my endocrinology colleagues in the South about who he could see, and he met with another surgeon at MD Anderson. Where they did their own workup, including head and neck ultrasound, chest x-ray, head and neck CT scan, And their conclusion was that I needed a full thyroidectomy with central neck lymph node dissection, uh, which I thought was a much better course of action, given the imaging studies. Pat underwent the surgery as planned, as well as radiation to his neck and chest and radioactive iodine therapy, which if you've ever had to take this iodine pill, you might mistake it for a biochemical or nuclear weapon, given the way it's packaged and mailed to you. And so 
you have since undergone the central lymph node dissection as well as radiation in January, and your tumor marker had remained undetectable for some time after that. Is that is that accurate? That is correct. About one month post-op, my tumor biomarker was still positive. So we pursued radiation about two months later. And then three months after radiation, testing for tumor recurrence was negative. What shocked me really was when I went for follow-up six months post-radiation, my tumor biomarker was detectable once again, which was a little bit disconcerting for me, as you can probably understand. Uh, especially since it had been undetectable just a few months before. Furthermore, the uh, concentration of tumor biomarker in my bloodstream was now over twice that of the lower detection threshold, which would potentially indicate that the doubling rate was three months or less. Some of the reading uh, that I've done, the research that I've read, shows that you can generally correlate the concentration of tumor biomarker with the location of tumors, And so based on that, the really concerning thing for me was that if the doubling rate really was three months or less, uh, then biomarker levels 12 months from that point in time would, would have correlated with lung metastases. I presented all of this information to my endocrinologist and my surgeon, and it actually, it actually made for a really good discussion. The surgeon made the argument that it was a single value in time, and an incredibly low value at that. Even though Pat's tumor biomarker appeared to have doubled rapidly, his TSH indicated adequate suppression of thyroid activity, meaning the cancer was not likely of significant burden even in this low amount. His TSH was going to be rechecked in another eight weeks anyway. So together, Pat and his surgeon agreed to check the tumor biomarker in addition to the TSH at that time. In that way, they could acquire more data sooner rather than later. You know, whether an engineer or a doctor or, or in general, an applied scientist, if you're really mindful of changes in signals, you have to do something. And many times that something can be as simple as gather more data. And sometimes it is watch and wait, because if you try and gather more data at the time, uh, there may not be any more data available to gather. So you have to wait until there's more data so you can trend, so on and so forth. But generally, I feel that you have to do something if there is a change in sickness. And the doctors agreed, as long as I didn't freak out at small changes in tumor biomarker, which that was their words, they didn't want me to freak out, um, that they were okay with testing for the tumor biomarker again. Okay, so you all reached a, a mutual agreement regarding the next steps of your management. I, I found it interesting when you told me over the phone a while back that you finding out the tumor marker had risen to detectable levels, took place outside of the doctor's office. Yeah, so at MD Anderson, they have an online system where they post all of your lab data on their internal system as soon as the results are plugged in, but the doctor ultimately has the say uh, as to when those results are released to the external system where the patients can view them. The results were released to the external system by my endocrinologist probably, I would say, an hour prior to my appointment with him. So I think probably he didn't necessarily anticipate that I would be checking my online results at that point in time. But I wanted to check before I went in to talk with him to see if anything had been posted such that I might be able to have a more informed discussion with him. The results can be selectively screened at the discretion of the treating physician. Screened. 
the transparency of raw digital data of discrete information can be adjusted. It could be delayed, or it could even be clouded or obscured. I mean, isn't that the exact opposite of what this information-sharing EMR is trying to achieve? Why even have a transparent EMR that your patient can access if you as the physician can decide which information reaches the patient and when? I guess Pat said it best earlier, so patients like him wouldn't freak out. Ultimately, Pat concedes that eventually all of his data, including physician progress notes, are released for his own review. Uh, So I see all the results, my blood tests, all the radiology reports, physicians and surgeons write up, so on and so forth. And this brings up another interesting question. What data should become available to patients? Here, I'll try to oversimplify the data in the medical record by dividing it into discrete information, like vital sign data and laboratory values, and expert interpretation, which includes physician progress notes and reports such as imaging results. Should both types of data be accessible to patients? And how can this affect the patient-doctor relationship? So I asked Pat about this. Would you say that knowledge of discrete information is more important to you than expert opinion? And if so, when might the reverse be true? No, I definitely don't think that uh, knowledge of discrete information is more important to me than expert opinion. But I don't think you can have one without the other. Knowledge of discrete information is, I would think, certainly necessary for effective treatment, but it's not sufficient to determine proper care. You have to have expert opinion. You have to have people who have experience and understand how that discrete data correlates with things. That's not to say that I think you're you're not allowed to dis- disagree with expert opinion. Uh, experts are still human beings, and they can still make mistakes, uh, which is why I you know I would always encourage anyone to get a second opinion if they're not comfortable with the first one they've been given. Uh, you know, I'm an engineer. I'm an applied scientist. I make mistakes all the time too. So even given my experience in my field, sometimes things don't correlate with what my experience would tell me they are. Do you think that doctors have the right to withhold certain information about you as a patient, whether it's a discrete data point or it's an assessment of your health? You know, Jim, that's a really tough question. I think in the medical field, it's probably one of those things that really separates the great doctors from the rest of them. I think in some instances, doctors do have a right to withhold certain information, but I do think they should be very deliberate in how they tailor their message to their patient. And that message should be tailored based on their understanding of the patient's level of intelligence, their experience with the particular ailment or illness, their psychological state, their mental stability, who's in the room, who's present to hear the message, who's not present to hear the message, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of factors, I think, that play into that. Medical ethicists refer to this as the principle of autonomy, that patients should have a full understanding of their condition, the treatment, and their prognosis. In some instances, there's a clear understanding when the patients or their surrogate want to know everything, or, on the contrary, when the patient or their surrogate does not want to know everything. The gray zone comes into play when a patient has the capacity to understand the information presented to him or her, but the physician may choose to maximize benefit in care delivery and minimize psychological or emotional distress by withholding information. This is so tricky, although it may be intuitive. Telling an emotionally fragile patient about a benign lung nodule might distract the patient from appropriately managing their anxiety or depression as they ravenously explore online support groups and resources for patients with suspected lung cancer. And imagine a patient who has access to this imaging report prior to their appointment with you. Think of the time wasted attempting to quell their fears about an incidental finding when that time would be better utilized, reinforcing stress management strategies and coping mechanisms.
Personally, I can't stand not knowing or understanding the treatments I'm being given uh, and the reasons for them. But I know there are other people on the other end of the spectrum who simply, they want the doctor to fully take the reins uh, and they'll take the doctor's word at face value. And I get that too. Ultimately, I want to empower my doctors to make decisions about how they inform me or what data they provide me with. And I do want their expert opinion on it, but I also want it to be a discussion too, because obviously I'm invested in the healthcare that I'm getting as one of the, one of the people involved in the decision. Well, thank you so much. I really, I really truly appreciate you sharing your story with us on Brainwaves. Thanks for having me, Jim. That's it for Brainwaves. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Andy Cohen. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.